Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about home prices and what it would take to crash those. First, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, it's Tracy Velt, Senior Director of Data and Content for HousingWire. Today, I'm speaking with John Gibson, Senior Vice President of TPO Lending at Flagstar. Why should brokers be choosing Flagstar right now? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, so a couple things. One, I think in dealing with Flagstar, we bring the financial stability and safety and soundness of a business partner, right? So we're going to be here. We were here yesterday. We were here through the pandemic. We were here through all the good times or bad times, depending on the market. That financial soundness as a lender and investor for our business partners, I think gives them peace of mind. Secondly, I think it's our consistency and our commitment to the space. We've been supporting the broker channel for over 30 years at Flagstar, and that is longer than any investor I know from an uninterrupted standpoint. It's been a consistent supporting of the broker channel for 30 years. It is literally in the DNA of who we are at Flagstar um, from a mortgage perspective. So I, I would tell you from that from that viewpoint, and then obviously, like we mentioned earlier, the, the depth of product, right? But overall, the support and the commitment to the space has been unwavered for 30 years, and I think that goes a long way. Thanks, John. For more information, go to flagstar.com backslash Y, flagstar.com backslash W-H-Y. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is wonderful to be here. And before we start, I probably we should need to tell people this because I get this question every day. We actually do have a Housing Wire YouTube channel now. So when people ask me, you know, uh, um, what about your YouTube account? You just type in Housing Wire and both the podcasts per week will be there now. So if you prefer YouTube, that's go there. You can find it there. And then you could also see Sarah grimacing and painful and telling me stop it and waving her hands and the top <laughs> clock and all the, all the things that she does that we still capture on, on camera. <laughs> all the things that I do to try to keep us on target and on time. Yes. It's, it's like hurting cats. So best um, Logan is unleashed Logan, Sarah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's dive in. We have had a week. What are you looking at right now? Yes. And I think, you know, after everything that's happened this week, you know, today the housing starts data came out and it's, it's you know, it's it's so confusing to everyone because, uh, you know, a lot of the recession calls were based still on, you know, uh, construction employment falling and housing single family permits are still growing. And, you know, you don't traditionally see uh, a recession when single family permits are growing and new home sales are growing just to give everyone a, a crazy stat, you know, how the year over year data is nuts. Uh, purchase application data for new homes is up like 40% year over year. Right. So it's not because demand is booming crazy. We just have a very low bar and new home sales have been growing double digits on year over year for some time now. So it's not shocking as that keeps on continuing. And I think, uh, you know, seeing the builder's confidence index fall uh, the last few months, I think we have to remember that the small builders do not have the advantage the big builders have. So 
Big builders are out there to eat their lunch. They have their own mortgage thing going for them. They're offering lower rates. They're taking market share from not only the existing home sales market, but also from the uh, smaller builders. So it's it's uh, everything is a little bit more confusing post-COVID on housing. So I do understand that that confusion to a degree. I think one of the things I appreciate um, when you do your analysis of the of the home builders' confidence and and other data points, you look at what how many homes are in backlog, how many are still being you know have been started, how many have been completed, and then like that that nebulous like um, ones that are kind of in in the middle because that really it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, if you're a small builder that maybe two to six homes maybe you build a year. Um, uh, I'm not sure how much capital you have to pay down rates, uh, you know, cause it, costs have come down, you know, to, to some degree, but really the total cost of building doesn't really deflate in any big fashion. So, uh, it becomes a little bit more problematic for them, especially as mortgage rates kept on he- heading toward 8%, uh, they would be impacted disproportionately than let's say a bigger builder. But I think in, in context, if you just think of new home sales are still growing, um, then m- most, I mean, a lot of the data lines start to make more sense. I just think, you know, when you have the biggest home sale crash ever in the existing home sales market, but new home sales has changed that for about a year now, you get stuck into the, okay, this market is still down, but this market has to be down and it wasn't, uh, um, it, it's still been growing very low bar, but Year-over-year growth is year-over-year growth. You know, you're, you always make a point to say the builders are here to make money and they, they're, they're- They're not the March of Dimes. <laughs> they're not the March of Dimes. And if you don't know what the March of Dimes is, it's because you're not that old. That's what I would say. Every time Logan says, I was like, a lot of people are not going to know what the March of Dimes is, I think. Let me know. You can let me know if I'm wrong on that. Um, yeah, they're not a charity, right? And they have definitely keep a, a close eye on the inventory. And depending on how many months of inventory, they, they pull back, correct? Yeah. You know, um, we had a, a spike in monthly supply for the builders. So naturally, everyone goes to 2008. You know, you have a very well-known Wall Street analyst saying that, you know, the demographics are bad and, uh, you know, it's done for the builders and they can't. And then all of a sudden, the you know, forward-looking data gets better on them and it, it takes them a little bit too long to adjust that new home sales were working from a very, very low level last year. Uh, you adjusted to the cancellation, right? And builders are efficient. So they made deals to grow. So when it starts growing, kind of just go with that uh, until it reverses. And of course, if rates go higher, some get hit harder than others. So uh, I think that's the confusing aspect because you know I, I, I like to always show the charts where I show single family permits and it's kind of had like a little mini V-shape recovery, but apartment construction, five-unit permits are heading lower. But single-family permits are usually always higher than uh, apartment construction. So the bulk of the data line, the the real meat and bones is is uh, the single-family sector. And we still have 105,000 new homes that haven't even started construction yet. That's pretty much near an all-time high. So COVID-19 has done a lot of crazy things to housing data and uh, uh, trying to make sense of it at all. You know, it's been probably a little bit the more complicated thing for me because you got to talk to normal people, then you got to talk to Wall Street people. And then, you know, it's it's two different categories. But uh, I, I totally understand why some people are terribly confused with housing data. 
It is confusing. And you know, when you say what you mean by that is the number of homes, homes sold, you're not talking about prices. So let's talk about prices a little bit. Yeah. So naturally, I think what, what occurred last year is 2022 to me is going to be like the historical year ever in housing. Like takes COVID takes to 2008 uh, out of the uh, first place spectrum. So we started 2022 with home prices accelerating out of control, right? It was February that I talked about, like, that's it, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm done with the housing market. We need higher rates to just shut this whole thing down. Um, and actually, this came because of a, a tweet I did where it shows like 200 people were looking at a house in Los Angeles. It was just, this is stupid, right? You know, um, so being part of team higher rates in 2021 and 2022, you need the market to cool down. Well, a lot of people say that prices follow volume. Okay. And this is true to a degree. The growth rate of pricing does fall. But when you have the biggest home sale crash ever recorded in history, naturally everyone went into the, we're going to have a major, major decline in home prices in 2023. And I am showing mercy by not showing the tweets that I was getting right about this time last year. <laughs> of course, naturally we're past November 9th. November 9th is the, the housing dynamics have shifted. But like all analysts, you have to model out ways for what will it take to crash home prices, right? And you know, e- you know, even in the 2023 forecast, as long as mortgage rates were above 5.87% and home sales were still crashing, adjusting to the, you know, early part of the uh, uh, housing uh, uh, cycle or the housing year, you can have 59 to 7.4% national home price declines. If home sales were crashing. Now, the theory was that the whole dynamic of housing changed on November 9th, 2022. You're threading a needle, assuming that home sales were going to stop going down at 4 million. We were near 5 million at that point. So that was like, okay, we're going to try to thread a needle right here. Triple coverage. It's fourth down. I still got to get it to the wide receiver to win the game. Um, but how do we model out home price crashes? Because you have to model out price declines, but a home price crash, a national home price crash. So I, I, I talked about this uh, this morning today on on Twitter. Um, let's take all the noise out of the equation. Take everything out for a second. Just think clearly. Breathe and think. If we have proven that it's very difficult for home sales to get below four million with duration, right? We always use the word duration for for a reason. What variables do you need to change to have home prices crash on a national basis? Because all the blood and glory is about national home prices crashing. So I offered this to everyone. Okay, if you can answer this question, then you you yourself would know, you would understand. Let's just say home sales for the next few years, stable, doesn't grow, doesn't decline. But we range from 3.7 million to 4.3 million, just around there. Okay. Cause we've shown that it's very difficult to really break down underneath. Okay. I think a lot of people didn't know that. I think that's just the inexperience of never forecasting in your life or not trade or not tracking housing data, but just doing doom porn. So here, what variable first has to change? Well, you need inventory to increase. Why? Because when you have more inventory, you have more choices. More people are competing for the smaller buyer out there. So it forces some people to cut prices. 
So variable number one, we need inventory to grow. In a, in a, if you're talking about a national home price crash, like the Case-Shiller Index, the Zillow Index, FHFA, all these things, all the things that we've been promised for 12 years, you need inventory growth. Okay. So when we model that out, what do we first need to see? We need to see new listings data grow, right? Because that's the new listings data count. Those are the homes that are in the marketplace that are not going into immediate sale. So number one, right? How do we model this? We want to teach people this so everyone can follow the same data line so we get a coherent message with the data. New listings data has to grow, right? Active inventory has to grow. Now, what we've seen is we actually have recent history in America to show us this, right? The inventory, we like to make it simple. We'll show the NAR stuff. From the year 2000 to 2005, inventory has been growing, right? Active listings. Monthly supply, right, stayed below five months. How did that happen? Because we had a major credit sales boom in America back then. You know, home sales were booming. So that falsified home sales boom kept the monthly supply data going. Active listings were going because people were listing their homes, they were buying their homes or everything. You know, the whole mortgage rate lockdown, I think, comes from this premise because people remember that time and period. Here, what's the difference? We don't see active inventory growing for five years. We see a slow downtrend. So what that's occurred is it facilitated home price growth to get out of hand. So we have an affordability issue. But even with an affordability issue, people have to list their homes to sell them to give people choices. So we go with new listings data first. We get the growth in there. And then we get active inventory just to get... If we could get active inventory nationally just back to 2019 levels... The structural dynamics, I believe, housing changes. This is why I always focus on 2019 because with higher rates at 2019 levels, hey, you you got something. Doesn't necessarily mean a crash, but you have something right there, right? You can work with it. You don't have what we saw in 2023, right? Home prices rebounding very fast. Okay, so the inventory has to grow. That's variable number one. New listings data, active inventory. We work with that. That's how you model home price crashes. You see growth, right? New listings data trending at the lowest levels ever recorded in U.S. history for 16 months. That's if you're if you're a home price crash person, that was the last thing you needed to see. And guess what happened? It went the other way for you, and you didn't either. You didn't read the data, or you didn't know about it. Either way, it's on you. It's a reflection on your fake housing, whatever you are. You're not an analyst, you're not a data analyst, there's no forecast, there's no models. We see it. So let's say stable demand, and then we see inventory start to pick up. Well, guess what? Monthly supply can pick up noticeably, right? We've had times where active inventory data doesn't do much, but we have monthly supply. So the days on market grow. Then you get more and more people cutting prices, right, to to, uh, get their homes sold. The price cut percentages have to increase. What do we see this year? The price cut percentages, even with mortgage rates going eight percent, still down year over year. That you can't, you're not getting a national home price crash if that's if that's the case. Okay, so we have that there. Then the second thing is, you need home sales really to crash, and this is the problem here. Can home sales materially crash from these levels? Okay, so number one, credit got really really tight. In 2005, 2005 to 2008, the uh, MBA, Mortgage Availability Index, that thing went from 400 to 900. And then in 2005, 2006, that thing collapsed, waterfall collapsed. Okay, so home sales collapsed because credit, the credit market was facilitating all that demand. 
it was gone. So 2005 to 2008, home sales were falling, right? 2005 to 2008, inventory was rising. Okay, so there you go. That's the that's the variable you want to see. Home sales fall, inventory increase, less demand, more supply. Keep it simple. That's what we want. And then we go into the third variable, which is really, you're probably going to need to see distressed sellers, right? And when we talk about distressed sellers, it doesn't necessarily need to be foreclosures because I would say that the foreclosure process, because 30, 60, 90, 120-day lights, NOD files, they're all near all-time lows. That takes nine to 18 months before that supply hit. But you can see forced equity sellers. And then we go back to the new listings data. So the new listings data needs to escalate out of control. And because it's working from the lowest levels ever, guess what? It has the potential to do that. So we track that data. Invent- uh, in- demand falls, inventory increases, new listings data increases, price cut percentages works. And then this has to stick for some time, right? It has to allow inventory to escalate out of control, price cut presences, because you can't have demand increasing because it, it, it negates that. These are the things on how you want to model home price crashes. And I implore everyone, let's all do this together as a country. Let's let go of all the YouTubes and TikToks and all those people. Let them all go. Let Uncle Dave go and everything, right? Imagine a society reading together, educating itself, not believing in disinformation campaigns that the Russians and the Chinese are doing in America, right? So we all read together. And we work on that supply and demand equilibrium. And then it keeps on going and going and going. And there you can have what we saw after 2008, major home price crashes, distressed sales, distressed inventory, inventory not being able because active inventory was falling from 2007. A lot of people still don't know this, but the monthly supply stayed too high and the demand didn't really offset the supply. So that supply demand equilibrium supply really took off. Demand really didn't go too much lower after 2008, but the supply was there. Too much supply. Uh, So that's how we want to model things out. And we have to look at the live variable data because what we saw last year at this time, everybody jumped in for the home price crash, right? And then it didn't really happen because the forward-looking data changed. And I think you, and so there's these variables people have to look at, and then they have to step back and go, what is it that would cause some of those things to happen? So, you know, it, it, it has to be sort of a shock thing. We, we had COVID that didn't happen. Now, part of that was the Fed dropping rates and, you know, sending out, um, you know, paychecks to people things like that, relief to people. But it's not like we could go from zero to 60 like we did in the financial crisis. It could be something else, but it can't be that because we have all those laws now that make it almost impossible to see that kind of you know, terrible credit event happen. Well, you could have, I would tell you this, because we're working from such low levels of inventory, the ability to inventory growing when you see a distressed economy can happen. It ha- just hasn't happened yet. Um, the credit markets aren't going to get tight in that sense because Freddie and Fannie, if, again, if Freddie and Fannie were publicly traded companies with no government support, uh, you could put me on the credit tight list. Okay. But I've, I've been very adamant about that as long as they're in conservatorship, because people have to remember back then, Freddie and Fannie were, their stocks were collapsing. 
Nobody knew what was going on. They couldn't land, you know, they had to get him in conservatorship. And how did that look like? And what, you know, we didn't have that during COVID. Credit flowed. But if credit can get tight on the non-QM side, but on the general side, you know, lending can be facilitated. Uh, So it's just really, really hard, actually, to get home sales to go much lower than where we are now. And assuming that we do see a distressed economy, the, the cycles have always showed us that the 10-year yield and mortgage rates go lower. Now, you can make a counter argument here, which this is my best advice to my housing crash friends. Mortgage rates won't go low enough to offset the increase in supply because of the affordability hit. Now, the counter to that is that, well, we saw what happened last year, mortgage rates got to 6% and we had one of the biggest uh, month-to-month sales prints ever in history. However, let's just say that the economy's downturn is longer than what people anticipated and supply keeps on increasing because mortgage rates can't go any lower than, let's say, let's say they cap out at five, five and a half percent. The market needs 3.75 to 4.75 to take off the supply. So that's that supply and demand equilibrium. Now we can have that conversation when we get there, but we start off with new listings first, active inventory, growth in percentage, and then we can incorporate the recession and how many people are losing jobs that own homes and all these things. We can work with it together because trying to forecast a crash without thinking that everything stays the same, like things can't get better and things can't get worse, right? That's why I've always said that yearly forecasts are somewhat taken with a grain of salt. You can get a contract of, of what you think can happen, but the variables could change like this, right? If the 10-year yield was at three and a half right now, which we were this year and the spreads were better. And we're talking about, you know, 5% mortgages. What do we know so far? We know demand increases. We know inventory has a very hard time growing. Okay. So this is why the recession data lines are really critical. And that's why the jobless claims data was set in stone that we have to get above this here to start talking about major job loss. And you got to remember that I think one of the things I try to explain today with uh, the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve feels confident that they can manage any job loss because job openings are high, right? So even if a couple million people lose their job, they think they can just hold it at that just because job openings are high. Whether that's true or not, that's their confidence that they can manage this cycle. Um, so we don't get the COVID 20, 30 million people unemployed, or we don't get the unemployment rate getting to 10% plus. Um, We have a Federal Reserve that has the tools to try to attack any banking crisis going out in the future. And uh, they've been tight on their policies or trying to help the economy out. Imagine if Federal Reserve actually being proactive to help an economy then. So you have to incorporate that into the equation, right? And we have to see how those live variable works. And the reason I'm talking about this is because we're sitting here almost in Thanksgiving and prices are still at all-time highs. And not only that, the second half of 2022 is not showing the same type of weakness, even with higher home prices and higher rates. You're going to have to incorporate that to think, wait a second here. This is true. It's not 2022 because 2022 had a humongous sales crash, 6.5 million down to 4 million. Now we're just hovering here. And I'm trying to get people to think about what happens if we just hover between 3.7 to 4.3 million, right? You would need the supply to increase and the demand not being able to take down that supply, that equilibrium. That's why I always say 
Housing economics, you have to worry with the supply and demand equilibrium, 10-year yield credit, all these things here. And you cannot do a hypothetical theory about inventory. Like a, this morning, again, the Airbnb bust. Dealing with it one more time, right? And I would say that if you had an Airbnb bust, because Airbnb is less than 1% of all the housing units in America. We have over 144 million housing units. It's less than 1%. If you're talking about that is going to be the biggest housing bubble crash, that inventory has to escalate in a very fast fashion, quickly, right? It can't have new listings data trending. Think about the purity of this as, as a country. If everybody read the new listings data from the start of 2021, what would they all say? They would go, oh my God, it's trending at the lowest levels ever recorded history. And then it took another leg lower after mid-July for 16 months, right? I believe it's finding a bottom. I believe we should see growth. We're seeing some year-over-year growth. But to have an escalation clause or escalation data, you need it to go vertical, right? It can go vertical because we're working from the low levels. This is why we, we talk about supply and demand equilibrium. We want people to read because if everybody reads the same thing, then all the people that make up all the stuff, they go, wait, you're wrong. You don't read. Logan is right. You're one of those people, right? So, <laughs> so this is why we have to track live weekly data, right? And uh, um, and then it looks forward and we have ideas, right? We have, we, we, we can't miss something like this, right? You know, because guess what? The data will get us there. It'll show us a path. And we put recessions, we put uh, how much d- demand is, where mortgage rates is, where demographics are. We put all these things into the equation. And once things break, traditionally, they're not hard to miss, Right, I think the equilibrium between a, in a slow economy can be misleading. But let me tell you something: when things break, especially in housing, inventory goes up, demand can't offset it, price cut percentage goes up, prices start to come down. If you were talking about a national home price crash, guess what? We saw the data how it looked like post two thousand eight. You can't hide it, right? And all those variables I just talked today, they all work together, right? That's how economics works. This little sphere, all these variables, enchilada, and they everything work together. And if the data doesn't support it, you don't need to go there. When it does, we trust me, I will go there one hundred percent. But I just, we just don't see that yet in the data line. I also think it's just um, everything you said. You know, it's it's harder to crash home prices than people think. Well, you need a, you mean, need a willful seller to sell you their homes at thirty or forty percent off it's on a national basis, right? You need you need a collective whole, right? You know, people go, well, look at Austin. Austin is one city. It's not the housing market, right? That's why the Case Shiller Index doesn't look like Austin, right? Austin has a lot more inventory. Its prices accelerated out of control, right? So. Uh, but we weren't talking about national home price crashes. Remember, every market is different, but we all know one variable fact. Active inventory is still near all-time lows. New listings data is still trending at all-time lows. Existing home sales have found a bottom around here, around 4 million. This is why I always talk about that 4 million number all the time, right? Um, so v- variables need to change and the forward-looking data will let us know. Like, we're not going to miss anything. We always tell people, every Friday, I get it. Nobody else does. Right, Mike, myself, this our, the data scientists that we have, we get it. If something happens, we'll let you go. But don't have a speculative theory because now we're here almost in Thanksgiving and all the things we were promised at the end of 2022, all those tweets, those messages. God, there's a part of me that just wants to share them all. And I'm just telling you, it, it is, some of the stuff is so priceless, but 
And a lot of people delete their stuff, which is cowardly. And that even makes it worse. That's why I want to show some of them. But remember, um, let the data guide you. We have ways. We have a pathway. We have a price to price increase. We have a pathway to price declines, right? We had we had home prices declining on a month-to-month basis with active inventory and monthly supplies still low. And that happened because we had the biggest home sale crash ever recorded in history, right? The product that was available in the marketplace at that time needed price cuts to, to get sold. That's why the slope of the inventory curve was fast. That's why the slope of the price cut percentage was fast. That slope was very slow this year and the data showed it. And that's why we believe it. if we can teach, if we can educate a whole society, read data and everything, and then, oh my God, everyone becomes part of this reading army and it's going to be such a beautiful day. Logan, <laughs> Logan you have this utopian vision for people who, who not just only want to read, but they want to read data and charts. And I love that for you. That's a, that's a, that's a very hopeful stance. Um, but it's not going to happen. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Listen, I, I, listen, I always tell people here. my we're Instagram here. is so, I mean, if you want, if you really want to fall asleep, man, you could just go to my Instagram stories and everyone's got these nice, lovely photos and parties and events and everything. And I'm like, oh my God, look at the jobless claims data on a four week moving average. And look at it. Here's commodity prices here. And I'm so excited and happy to talk about it. It's like 1130 on a Friday night. And I'm not that guy, you know, the party guy, but I will be the 24-7 nerd. And I would say, like, everyone needs one good nerdy friend in their life, right? So I'll be that guy. Well, you'll be that guy. And thank you for being that guy for us. Really appreciate it. This was a, a great analysis, and we will talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.